It's week 31 of 2018, and today on TechNado, we're going to talk with Rob Carson from SemperSec about life as a security consultant. We've also got some news from Microsoft and some great people being hacked once again. That's all coming up in the TechNado, starting right now. Welcome to TechNado. I'm your host, Peter Van Rysdam, and I am joined, as always, by Don Pissette. Don, how are you doing today? Hey, excited to be here. We have got a great show lined up, uh, a great interview, which we'll talk about in a second, and uh, tons of tech news all coming at you on TechNado. Yeah, we were just going through the stories, and it looked like uh, a lot of Microsoft-heavy stuff. We've, we've had that here in the last couple of weeks, and I know we'll have that a little bit more when we, uh, we're going down to Microsoft Ignite later this year, so... A lot of Microsoft stuff, some cloud stuff to get to as well. But uh, we also have an interview, as Don mentioned. And uh, Don, this is someone, uh, Rob Carson, who was in all this week actually filming content. What what were the shows about that he was filming here? So, uh, you know, Rob, and, and he'll talk about this in the interview, but uh, he is a, uh, a security consultant. He works for a, a company called SemperSec, and they get out and they help companies go through planning for security policies and, and doing incident response. Really cool stuff. Unfortunately, most companies are held to an NDA and or not an NDA, but they just they, they don't like to disclose details about security incidents, and most people don't get a chance to see the inside world of that. So when we had Rob here in the building this week, I said, "Can, can I get you onto the podcast? Because it would be really fun to just talk about what that looks like for companies that are engaging with security professionals and what that experience is like." And and so he uh, he graciously agreed to do that and spent some time. Uh, I just bounced any any question that popped into my mind. <laughs> I kind of threw at him as we went through and, and learned a little bit more about, about what it's like uh, operating that world. All right, well, let's go ahead and check out that interview that's uh, coming up right after this, and then uh, stick around after that. We'll have the news as well, so stay tuned. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am here with a very special guest in my studio, Mr. Rob Carson from SemperSec, uh, who is going to be talking to us a little bit about incident response and and some of the different things companies have to have to go through when a breach occurs. Like he specifically deals with that stuff, so I'm, I'm really excited about this interview. And uh, Rob, let me just start by thanking you for spending time with us. Oh, it's great to be here. And for our viewers who aren't familiar with you, I. I've known you for a little while now. Mm -hmm. you, you, Rob's actually been coming and filming some content with us over at, at IT Pro TV, which has been a lot of fun. Uh, but that's not your real job, right? Your day job. No. You're out there working with SemperSec. Let, let's start a little bit here in the beginning. Uh, just get you to, to introduce yourself okay. and a little bit about SemperSec, your organization. Just kind of let the viewers know who you are. Absolutely. So uh, about myself, so uh, – I started off as a Marine Corps infantry officer, actually, so I'm good at organizing chaos. And started off uh, working as a as a VP of operations in an IT security company, MSSP, MSSP. Did the back end of the cloud as cloud security, um, and then started uh, SemperSec. Um, and essentially, what SemperSec does is we focus on solving real problems, facilitating customer success. Because um, a lot of the issues we, we've we've all had consultants and. It's like they've never done it before, so they give you the book answer, or they give you a bunch of crap, that, a bunch of paperwork that's useless. So I tell people, you're going to pay me to write less. I'm going to give you more pictures, crack app stuff. The advice we give is stuff we've we've done, and we you get to learn from our lessons. And we work a lot on you know building security programs, making sure that uh, uh, companies are set up right, doing the audits, the external audits for or internal audits for them, like helping them offload certain parts because there's just only so much you can do. Give me that separate set of eyes with. Somebody's actually been there, so a realistic approach. And then, uh, you know, when we talk about incident response plan, we do a lot of work with the uh, with the prep side of things of how to how to get left of bang, how to have a plan, especially for some of the smaller companies that you know they can't afford everything in the world. But what do we do? Now, you you originally were working for a different organization, mm -hmm. and then you set out on your own to form SemperSec. Mm -hmm. what, uh, what 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 motivated you to do that? Like, why did you want to have your your own security company? Um. Because I figured out that it's one of those, I, I like adventure, and I want to help others. And I've already made these mistakes. Let me help other people work through these problems because they can save you time. And I felt like I could do a better job than the consultancy, some of the consultants I was using. You know, to, Honestly, to be like, hey, I, I bet you I could help speed up a lot of other programs, help them mature faster, and, and not be stuck you know, still managing their program in Excel. You know, and 
and not boiling the ocean, not trying to kill themselves because it's it's hard, you know. Uh, you know, let's talk about that helping people, right? So mm -hmm. in the in the security industry, what I've kind of noticed is that most companies uh, function in in either one of two areas, either the proactive side of security, where you help companies draw up their security policy and put controls in place and get everything set up before mm -hmm. a breach. Mm -hmm. And then there's the reactive side where you help companies that have been breached or have had a security incident, and now they're trying to to basically correct and get back on track. Where do you guys fall in, in that mix? Uh, that's a good question. So primarily, we focus on the beforehand. Um, that is the, uh, it's obviously the best part. We do do some post, um, but that is typically somebody who's one of our, uh, like one of our managed clients, essentially, because if we don't know your program, we don't know what you have, we don't already have access to something, it's real hard for us to help you. Um, and it's, you know, there's different SLAs for different needs. Um, but a lot of it is, because we definitely have the skill sets, that's for sure. Like uh, one of the members of my team has spent months re, uh, on post post breach response on, on for major companies, things like that. So we certainly have the capability, but having those people, uh, they can be tied up. So it's, it's kind of, we, I mean, we'll also refer to if we're, if we're occupied, because that's the biggest part is there are companies out there that have people with a go bag that are ready to go just like that. Um, it depends on what their needs are. You know, a lot of times the training, though, ahead of time, making sure that they at least have the capability for us to help, for anybody to help. So, you know, it's, it's kind of an interesting world right now because you can't go a week without reading about or seeing on the news some, some big breach, some mm -hmm. organization that's had a compromise or, or maybe it was ransomware and they've mm -hmm. lost access to their computers. So I think a lot of companies out there are recognizing how important this stuff is, right? But... I, I'm a member of the, the AITP, the Association mm -hmm. of IT Professionals, and I get to meet a lot of IT leaders. And for me, as, as, a, as a business owner, uh, I've got a company that is internet-based, and we mm -hmm. recognize the threats of what's out there. And we know, like, we, we have an instant response plan in place. We have a breach notification pre-drafted. We have all that stuff because mm -hmm. we know we need it. But not every business is like that. And I talk to a lot of people where they say, Don, you know, at what point do we really need to worry about this? Because drafting th something like a security policy can be a lot of work. It can be hundreds of pages of documentation. It can be tons of bureaucracy. And if you're a 10-person doctor's office, mm -hmm. maybe you think that's overkill. So what what type of clients do you find that you're dealing with? Are they are they all larger organizations that, that re recognize the need, or are you starting to see an influx of smaller clients? Seeing definitely an influx of smaller clients. So it's I, it's everywhere from uh, I've got one that's a five person company um, to you know uh, you know thirty forty thousand employees. It, it, it varies. The thing I would tell a smaller company is start early with something small with a you know, maybe an acceptable use policy or just because if you start to create that culture in the beginning, it's way easier to meet any compliance requirements you might have as you grow. Um, and as people come on, that's how it is, as opposed to, well, now they're changing all the rules. I can't just run as a global admin everywhere. Um, and an ounce of prevention is worth so much. Like you can do so much for, for free or for cheap, for very cheap. Like you don't have to spend tons of money until you get to a certain size because it's really what's the threat? You know, at the smaller size, a lot of times you're just trying to make sure you, you're dealing with humans that make mistakes, that are trying to do the right thing, stuff like that. But you've got rogue employees that used to have an access to everything, you know, and starting to do they really need it, you know, and it doesn't take a lot. Um, and one of the things we do that uh, I think is hugely helpful to companies is we'll simulate a breach. So because the hard part, as I talked about, is getting it's very expensive to bring in incident response people. You know, either you have a cyber insurance company that's going to pay for that, or um, you, know, you have those SLAs, and that can be expensive. What we'll do is we'll simulate a breach and help train your team to deal with it so that you don't have to, you know, you're, you're more prepared. You, you mentioned it's expensive to bring in incident response. Mm -hmm. um, let's say I have cyber insurance. Mm -hmm. Is it like medical insurance where you got doctors that are in network and out of network, so like they have a IR team that they work with and they dispatch, or or is it a matter of we get to pick? Yeah, you get to pick. It depends. I think it depends on your cyber insurance policy. They may have that, but typically, uh, yeah, you're you're gonna pick. But I mean, if you're picking some of the big guys like that have, especially if you're doing any kind of uh, government work, any kind of cleared work, like those guys are five hundred bucks an hour. Uh, so it's a very it can be very expensive. 
Um, and so that's why if you train your team on what you're going to do, can you stabilize things where you don't necessarily need the two-hour SLA to get on site or to be on the phone, you know, where it's like, hey, we can, we can stop the bleeding and then do the forensics or the post-breach review later. Like that's – there's different uh, levels of, of maturity and, and what you actually need. Yeah, and, and, and that, that's why I kind of tried to draw the line between enterprise versus small. Because in, in enterprise, you typically have the funding and the buy-in to be able to put policies in place, to be able to set the teams there. Mm-hmm. It's the smaller organizations, the startups, the, the companies that are less than 200 employees, mm-hmm. where it's a little bit harder there. They're, they're focused on pioneering some great new product. Absolutely. And now we've got to take budget, time, and resources away from people to say, let's start working on the security policy that – really only pays off if a breach happens. If a breach never happens, leadership looks at that as a waste of time and money. Well, and that's where I think it's all about uh, messaging. So it's one of those things like I talk about when I do my risk assessments. It's not about the hackers are coming. It's about protecting that business process, that line of revenue. Um, So we focus on the messaging has to be we need to protect this line of revenue as well as what are our customers' expectations. So security sells. Having sat on the back end of the cloud, like I had to get on customer calls probably once a day uh, with one customer or another talking to them about our security or, or pr- prospective customer. You know, here's our certifications, here's what we do, things like that. Because it's really uh, people are maturing and they're, they, they're trying to make sure like, hey, if I'm going to put my data with you, well, what do you do? Like, and sometimes you'll deal with vendors. Like I had this one that I talked to. I was like, well, if it makes you feel better, we run MacBooks. I'm like, no, <laughs> it doesn't make me feel better at all. With anything. <laughs> yeah, like, you still think Macs don't get viruses? Okay, but they're secure. They're they secure. Have file vault. Absolutely, it'd be fine. <laughs> it's like, but it's it's literally like it's it's the messaging piece and and what, what, what you know bringing in consultants to do most of the grunt work so that uh, they can spend some time learn the vernacular, um, get them approved, get them trained. That's a big piece too. Is it's not a waste of time if you have the right training, and it can't be. You know, those of you who are in the government or something like that, you had the terrible information assurance training where it was like, click here, blah, 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 some monotone. It was kind of like, you know, Ben Stein's InfoSec. Uh, <laughs> it was terrible. So now, you know, I have a lot of memes in my, my security training, but it's a lot of, you know, making it relevant to them. It's about protecting their jobs. It's not about the hackers. It's, hey, do we want to keep in business? Like, and that's, make it fun again. You know, it's kind of... Uh, because it, it can be, it can suck. <laughs> so, you know, walk me through that process, because yeah. I, I think a, a lot of our viewers have never been through this, mm-hmm. or they've gone to work for organizations that already had this implemented. So if, if we were a, a company, let's say a, a doctor's office, mm-hmm. 20 employees, you know, so not a, not a massive practice, mm-hmm. but holding medical records, so obviously important. Um, whoever you know, the office manager is becomes concerned. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe she thinks, look, we've got all these, these protections in place, but are they good enough? Are we meeting our obligations? Mm-hmm. We need to get somebody to come in and help us, mm-hmm. right? And so they reach out to somebody like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, they find you somehow uh, in, the, in the wanted ads. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and so they say, so they, they come to you and they say, Rob, we need help making sure that we have a good security policy mm-hmm. in place, that we're meeting our, our governmental regulation, our, our, our obligations. Absolutely. Uh, and that we have a plan in place in case something goes wrong. So where do you go from there? Like, what are the first steps? Absolutely. So the first steps would be probably a gap assessment. So we would do an assessment of what they have in place that day. Um, you know, we'd review their SOPs, things like that, come on site, and, and watch their business practices. Go, hey, how do you do this? Because really – it's about understanding stuff. When we do it up against the HIPAA standard or HIPAA high tech, whatever uh, framework that is most relevant to that, that vertical. Um, that's the great thing about SemperSec is we have familiarity with PCI, HIPAA, NIST 800-171, FedRAMP. Uh, we love ISO 27001. Because um, the frameworks, they all have their own little nuances, but at the end of the day, it's running a program. And, and a lot of the times where we find the gaps is it's not um, – it's not that they're doing something wrong. It's that they're not getting credit for it, or uh, they need they need some help more managing the program than anything. So that's why we actually offer compliance as a service, where we help manage the program and do the training uh, to make sure the stuff is continuing to move along, check it, and, and just validate things. You know, and the other thing you know we advise them to is like, okay, you guys have a, a monthly meeting. Add a two minutes to every agenda of a security training. Hey, as a reminder. We're going to be changing passwords. 
know, and it's hard. Changing passwords is hard, but we can make passwords for one. You know, use a phrase, you know, stuff like that. So once you start to kind of figure out what they have, mm -hmm. and then you start recommending some mm -hmm. some basic changes, you, you you try not to overwhelm all at once, right? You come up with little things to, to roll out. Absolutely. And is that for uh, better buy-in, or you've just seen more success that way? Uh, like, yeah. if you're, I guess, would, would you ever be in a hurry where you had to implement massive change at once? We have had to do that with uh, with NIST 800-171 uh, because the the they had, stuff had to be in place and contracts were in place. But in the preferred model, it's a one to two year program, you know, because change is hard. People need hugs, um, and you don't want and you want it to be effective. So the idea is, you know, you roll out one small piece. And see how that works. Audit it, check it. You roll out the next piece. So it's it's gradual, and it's not as, oh my gosh, the world is over. Like I can't do this because it's like because you know you're and also you want to make sure you're not breaking the business. You know that's a big piece. So we go we go very we recommend the recommendation. We, we put our recommendations together and say, hey, in order of risk, and you know you get some quick wins, as well as uh, you know risk based. Here's what we need to do, and some of it's going to be budget too. So you go okay, hey. You know, let's set that for next year. Put that in the budget for next year because everyone's got a budget. Nobody has unlimited funds. It'd be nice if they did. All right. So you work with the company. Mm -hmm. You start to craft uh, policies, procedures, activities, wh whatever mm -hmm. it is they need to to implement that basic mm -hmm. security. You get them to where they're supposed to be. Mm -hmm. Right now, they can rest assured that at least they've they've made an effort mm -hmm. to be secure. It is up to them to maintain security, and then they just kind of run that way, right? And assuming everything is perfect, they run the rest of their lives and everything's fine, but it just takes one person making a mistake somewhere along the lines to fall out of compliance, mm -hmm. and now they're at risk, okay? So for a, for a customer who's getting set up like this, are you continually monitoring and auditing them on a regular basis, or do they have to monitor themselves? How, how does that look? It really depends on their, uh, their budget, um, and what they need, like, you know, a 20 person doctor's office isn't going to be very much. It might be we come in quarterly, spend a day or two, check what we need to check, you know, help, help them stay. You're kind of, we call it like 90% audit ready. You know, it's trying to stay in that, in that good known state um, because the business changes and people, people change. So especially if they don't have somebody to maintain it. Um, and we use uh, K, KPIs and KRIs to help measure that. So key performance indicators, key risk indicators. And it's not so much... Are we stopping hackers? But we're making sure your program's working, which in theory should be mitigating your risk. Um, but it is definitely uh, you got to go. You got to go slow. And but going in that quarterly or that monthly, it depends on what kind of contract they need. We'll do monthly um, or we'll do quarterly, depending on what it is. And that continuous audit is nice because depending on how they're set up, we don't necessarily have to come on site. We can check things throughout the month, and it's less invasive and doesn't take anybody away for very long. Now, assuming you've gone through the whole process, right? Mm -hmm. you, you've obviously been working with the company quite a bit mm -hmm. at this point. So you you know their people, you know their product, you know mm -hmm. the way they do business, that their security controls you're familiar with because you, you've drafted them, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so, so you've got a, a good knowledge of the organization, and then a breach occurs, mm -hmm. right? And maybe when I say breach, I immediately think of some external actor hacking in and compromising data, but maybe it's as simple as uh, ransomware mm -hmm. hits one machine. It wasn't a targeted attack. Uh, odds are medical data wasn't sent out. It's just, you know, that machine mm -hmm. got locked, maybe more than one machine. So now we hit incident response. Mm -hmm. And as part of what you've done in the pre-work, mm -hmm. you, you would have already crafted an incident response plan, mm -hmm. correct? And, Absolutely. And so what, what does that operation look like then? They they, they call you on the phone, or they, they have other people they call? What? That's a good question. So it depends It depends on what it is, um, to be honest with you, and, and what they've, uh, you know, what services they've, they've garnered from myself or from, from some other organization. Um, you know, because their size and scope, it may be one of those things like, hey, we aren't the right size for you. Um, you, need, you need this. Um, but they call us, and typically we're going to help them stop the bleeding. You know, we may not be doing the deep forensics because it also depends, like, are we trying to go to court? Are we just trying to stop the bleeding? What are we trying to do? Because um, there's different uh, levels of preservation of evidence, things like that. Um, but essentially, we're gonna, if we know their stuff, we're going to say, hey, follow the plan, shut this off, isolate this, you know, and then it may be, you know, maintain, we'll give them some chain of custody cards and basically do this and send it via, you know, courier to uh, a 
either to ourselves or to somebody who we need who we've outsourced to to make sure that they can look at and do the actual forensic review if necessary. Um, it depends on what it is though. If it's just yeah. a malware, if it's ransomware, it might be we might send them if we have the keys, we might send them the keys to help them decrypt it. You know, so I was thinking about that like um, for me, mm -hmm. right? L let's say that my laptop right here in front of me gets hit with ransomware, mm -hmm. right? It's not even going to occur to me mm -hmm. to call the FBI. No. Right, because what are they going to do? Right, it was just some random ransomware. It hit my machine. I'll, I'll just wipe the machine, restore it from backup, be back in business. Mm -hmm. it, there's no, there's no point in, in my opinion that yes, a crime was committed. Mm -hmm. Somebody damaged my computer. Who are you going to call? But <laughs> and and if I did call the FBI and open up a case, it's not like they're going to track down that particular person. And even if they did, they're probably in some other country, and so it, it's just not even worth it. But there are high-profile cases where, uh, and I'm thinking there was a hospital in San Francisco that got hit by ransomware, and mm -hmm. they had the FBI involved, and they had that, that, uh, that legal aspect to it, which actually slowed their recovery down significantly because mm -hmm. the FBI was collecting evidence, whereas I would just blow the computer away and restore from backup, be back up the next day. And that's where good practices come into play. You know, where do you store your data? Like, the only reason why we're going to try to, you know, help you with ransomware is because you have, you didn't, you have something stored on that piece that you have to get. Because um, absolutely, the advice would be just wipe it, you know. But the other part is making sure that you've isolated it from the network so it doesn't spread. Um, but that's and that's really what it comes down to. But you can do some very simple things: stop the bleeding, rebuild the machine, and train your users. We don't back this up. If there's a problem, it's gone. So don't store your stuff on your laptop. <laughs> put it in the proper place. Or thumb drives, or all the crazy other places people store things. Absolutely. Now, who ultimately who's the decision maker when it comes to contacting the authorities? Who, who is that? I mean, would that be on, on your advice or would it be the executives of the company? Like who finally sits down and says, you know what? We're calling the FBI or, so, or we're calling local police or we're not calling anybody. Like who, who makes that call? Generally it's, it's the business. It's the executives. That's what, that's what would happen. Um, the only uh, exception to that is if someone sends me child porn, which, you know, I always tell people if you come across something like that, just put a white sheet over it. That, that laptop is dead. Don't send me screenshots of what you found. Um, but if somebody, if something like that, then I have to call the FBI. You know, so there's, but typically, you know, we have our NDAs and things like that. So as long as it, there's no legal requirement um, for reporting, we're, it, that's really up to the business to to decide. We don't. It's not for us to go get on Twitter and say these guys have been popped like that's, that's yeah. that'd be awful I know um, there was some statistic I, I don't I don't have it here so I, I can just make one up right uh, <laughs> but uh, but there was a statistic that was talking about how most companies don't report mm -hmm. cybersecurity incidents that uh, maybe they have a breach data gets exfiltrated maybe it's ransomware maybe it's whatever you know somebody steals a laptop mm -hmm. right and they don't they don't report that yep. and that, I guess that's part of what GDPR is working to fix that you have these three days to notify and, and all that but uh, I think that most of these things are going unreported. And in your experience, you, you've dealt with a number of organizations. Would you agree with that? Do you? I'd say it's 100% of organizations. So it's very all. rare that you get involved with law enforcement? Uh, yeah, it's pretty rare. Um, a lot of times, and, and the reason why, is it's not that uh, law enforcement's bad. It's that they don't necessarily have the skills. Or if they do, they don't have enough people. You know, and how big a company are you? You know, I mean, if you're if you're like, you know, the Sony hacks or the targets or the, the big hospitals, like, yeah, absolutely. You're going to get the attention. But like if you're an SMB, like. Are you going to get somebody even qualified to help you? You know, it, you mentioned Target. Target was a massive breach, right? I mean, they, they had compromised mm -hmm. the payment terminals at almost all of the stores. They harvested. I forget the number. It was like 50 million credit card numbers, something ridiculous mm -hmm. like that. How many how many people went to jail? I don't think any. None. They, they weren't able to track it back to anybody, right? And and then, you know, the news will say it's uh, uh, Russian actors or, or whatever, right? It uh, depends on how far back you want to trace the, the thing. Yeah. So when when you're up against that, it, it is more about just kind of recovering your business. Now, one, one thing I've always been curious about is, let's say um, some kind of breach occurs or, or we'll keep running with ransomware, right? Mm -hmm. And the company sits down and says, all right let's just blow away all the machines or restore them all from backup because they've got amazing backups in place. Uh, mm -hmm. Most companies should. Uh, they restore from backup. How do they stop it from happening again? So somebody has to do a, an analysis to say, like, hey, how did it happen in the first place mm -hmm. and how do we prevent it again? Is that is that a role you guys fall into? Absolutely. We do that. We'll do the root cause analysis, essentially, of like, okay, this is, this is what happened. Um, 
you know, bringing the right experts for, for what's necessary. But a lot of the times it's, it's brilliance in the basics. If you look at these recent hacks, it's not some kind of uh, hardcore sophisticated thing. It's efficient. It's like firewalls, going through a firewall is hard. It's a lot easier to send you an email or just figure out your password's admin. Um, like that's, that's the thing is it's not, uh, it's good practices in place. It's like, hey, if you had just made sure that you weren't running as a domain admin all the time, you might have had this problem be solved. Like it's, it's, it's those brilliance in the basics. Like they're not, uh, they don't need to use these super sophisticated attacks. And that's the thing is like, unless you're being targeted by a nation, like you got to think about the threat, right? So you have you have the social activists, you have your nation states, you have your criminal underground groups, and then you have like your script kitties, the ones that are just out there exploring the world. Um, and who's after you? And that's where attribution is a big piece. And that's something we focus on as, as companies mature is starting to build that intelligence around things to okay, you're stopping the basics. Now let's focus on like who's actually targeting you and why. What do they want? Now, I, I know a few people who do attribution for mm -hmm. a living and, uh, and the reverse engineers. Mm -hmm. uh, very, very difficult work mm -hmm. uh, where they take a malware package and actually reverse engineer it, try and figure out who wrote it and, and look mm -hmm. at the code inside of it. Uh, is it always like that? Or sometimes are you able to figure out that target through other means? Absolutely, through other means. You know, there's, there's social media, there's the dark web, there's different... Uh, there's a lot of different threat engines out there, and I'd say anybody that's looking at those kind of things, um, what you want to th – there's different flavors for different companies and different use cases. So finding a, uh, you know, the, the dark web threat feed. I mean, like, when I first started out, my, I had a poor man's threat feed. I had a tweet deck, a Have I Been Pwned account, and uh, an account at Pastebin. And I was, that, was, that was my, my dark feed. Um, but there's different – you know, there's services out there you can, you can procure, but you want to make sure you pick the one that – that makes the most sense for your organization, the type of data you're dealing with, what matters. Because social media is a big piece. You know, watching those kind of things go on of like, hey, did, you know, because you look at SANS, right? SANS got popped a few years ago um, by Anonymous because the CEO tweeted about Iran, was upset about, you know, something, and then basically they, they went after them. Um, and that's a big, that's something to think about is like, there's the social media side of things of watching that type of threat of like, because those are the, the, uh, ones with the ideal, the ideologues are scary, because it's a matter of time and effort for somebody to get in, and if they're ideologically driven, they can keep going. As opposed to a criminal, it's like, eh, well, I can go. F your competitor is easier to get into. They go for that low-hanging fruit. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've, I've heard that from other people. And uh, when somebody's politically motivated, when uh, they have a grudge, you know, they got an axe to grind. It's a very different story, uh, and it's a very, very persistent type of attack. All right. Well, Rob, I, I really appreciate you sharing your insight on a lot of this stuff because mm -hmm. you, know, you are out there on the ground. You get to see how this is being implemented. Um, sometimes when I'm in the educational space, <laughs> uh, we talk a little bit about fundamentals and theory and how, how it would be nice if things were this way. <laughs> in the real world, it's oftentimes different. Um, now, we talked a lot about the type of work that you do mm -hmm. and, and your, your company, Sempersec. You specialize in helping companies out there to become compliant, to be be able to sleep at night and know that you've done everything you can to make sure that your systems are protected. Uh, if our viewers want to reach out and learn more, what, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Best way would be just send me an email at rob.carson at sempersec.com. Um, that'd be probably the easiest way to get a hold of me right off the bat or go to the website, sempersec.com. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I can't speak highly enough about Rob and, and his whole team. There's several people that, that work together with Rob to create that solution. Uh, great group of guys, just easy people to talk to and not not bureaucrats, which is really nice. So I imagine that comes from the uh, Marine background or something. It so. does. And the we're here to solve the problem. Like if we wanted to do office politics, we would uh, we'd have W2s. <laughs> we go. We go work at. We go work at some work for a different company. Nice. <laughs> All right. Well, Rob, I really appreciate you spending time with us on the podcast. I know the viewers do too. And for the viewers out there, stay tuned because we're not done yet. Peter and I will be right back here in just a moment with uh, the latest in IT news and technology. After this. Thank you so much to Rob for joining us there, and thank you, Don, for just – that's your second great interview in two weeks. It's, it's almost uh, 
It's almost like the interviews write themselves. Yeah, lightning <laughs> does strike twice, <laughs> apparently. All right, well, let's get to the news. There was a lot going on in the tech world this week, as we mentioned uh, earlier. So uh, to kick things off over here in the New York Times, uh, New York moves to kick Spectrum out of state. And the first time I read that headline, I thought they were getting rid of Spectre. And I was like, well, good. Everybody yeah. should. But uh, but Spectrum, we're talking about the, the telecom company. The telecom company. Yep, the, the cable and internet provider, the ISP. Um, there were a number of articles out about this this week, so you probably heard it from other resources. Ars Technica, Tom's Hardware, and Gadget, they were all talking about this because different people are having different reactions. I was pretty shocked to see it, um, the idea of kicking a cable provider out of your state. If you're one of our international viewers, uh, both of you, <laughs> this might not make a whole lot of sense to you, but in the United States, we have these crazy monopolies. They're they're almost like state sponsored. It's, it's almost like communism, uh, <laughs> where where certain cities, certain counties, and certain states strike deals with a cable provider, and it becomes where they're the only cable provider in that area, and there's no competition really uh, allowed. Well, in New York, that's spectrum. Right, uh, not like not here in Gainesville. Some of the other cities in, in Florida have Spectrum, but not not us. Uh, but in New York, they have Spectrum. And what's going on is they had worked out a deal when there was the Time Warner merger that they were supposed to provide broadband access to rural subscribers, something like 120,000 subscribers they're supposed to reach. And over the last couple of years, they've failed to meet that number. They, they did actually provide, I think they say it in the article, like 80,000 or a little more than 80,000. Uh, rural customers did get service, but they failed to meet their goals. The goals that were set out to to be met uh, as a condition of approving that merger, and as a result, the state of New York has said, "That's it. We've had it. Uh, if you're not going to make good on your agreements, we're going to boot you out." And I think it's 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 interesting because there's kind of two sides to this argument of whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Um, on a good side. Hey, here's a cable provider that has no competition and has absolutely no motivation to provide the customer better service, right? So, so here's the state stepping in and, and making that happen. That, that's good. On a negative side, Spectrum employs over 11,000 people in New York alone. So that's 11,000 jobs that are being affected. Now, when they say they're going to kick the provider out, that doesn't mean they're going to shut down that whole network. They can't do that. So they're going to basically take that infrastructure and just give it over to another company. So somebody else like um, Cox Communications or somebody like that will come in uh, and take over that network, maybe. I mean, the reality is Time Warner, uh, not Time Warner, um, Spectrum will probably make good on on their promises or they'll come up with some kind of extension or whatever. Just because we haven't, to my knowledge, we haven't seen a major ISP turnover like this. Uh, but I did see, uh, and you know, we didn't cite it, we're citing the New York Times article here, but the RS. I think it was the Ars Technica art. No, it was the Tom Hardware article where uh, the guy was in a panic. He was like, I'm, I'm terrified. I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm, I'm going to have to switch to DSL. <laughs> it's like, wow, this is a first world problem right here. I have to suffer with DSL. Or, yeah, or his word, I just signed a two-year contract. They're not going to let me out of the contract, even though they're not allowed <laughs> to provide service anymore. That's the real – well, the, the real tragedy here is that, that Comcast continues to operate uh, anywhere in the in the world. You know, it, it's sad – I when I lived in Seattle, we had Comcast, and it, it was great. Like I, I'd call them on the phone. They'd help. I had great service. So I, I, I think it, it definitely varies on which market you're in. Yeah. But Comcast won, like, Worst Customer Service of the Year Award. I don't know if that's one. Yeah. yeah, Several years yeah. in a row. It's, it's like the Razzie. Yeah, do, do you exactly. Do accept like, the Razzie? Yeah, do we go and, and, uh, and accept it on Worst on technology behalf? podcast ever. Yeah. Oh, man. I would Just to be considered. It. Yeah, that would be... <laughs> That would be great. Well, uh, well, we'll keep an eye on on that story uh, over the next few weeks or months as, as it plays out. Because, like Don said, it, it's probably not going to end with with them having to leave. Maybe uh, some remediation and and steps being taken on their end. Uh, but we'll see. Who knows? You gotta, uh, you know, stick with your. Uh, if you if you if you say something, you you gotta actually act. Otherwise, everyone's just gonna walk all over you. Believe it or not. Yeah. All right, let's uh, shift gears now to our next article. This one over on Tom's Hardware. Microsoft finally distributing Redstone 5 ISOs. Uh, so what What are Redstone 5? All right, what so, is Redstone 5? Um, Microsoft has – it is kind of confusing, right, if you don't know the terminology. Uh, Microsoft has kind of announced that Windows 10 is going to be deployed a lot different than previous versions of Windows. You'd normally get a new version of Windows every two or three years. But with Windows 10, they've moved to this rolling release. Every six months, you get this new one. And so we had the 
the fall creator update. We had the spring update. The next update is the Redstone update. Uh, Microsoft acquired Minecraft for like a billion dollars, which is ridiculous. Um, and so now they own all the Mic Minecraft IP, so they're naming this one Redstone. I think the next one will be... Oh, is that a Minecraft thing? Yeah, that's a Minecraft thing. I did so not know that. I'm waiting for the Creeper update. You That'll have, be a good one. You have boys. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have children that play Minecraft. Um, but uh, yeah, so Redstone is what they're calling the next update. So that, that's the code name. And one thing that's been kind of frustrating... If you wanted to try it out ahead of time, you could join the insider preview group, right? So if you're a Microsoft insider, which is free, you sign up. And when you set your computer to run on the insider ring, you'll download the updates and you'll update to the preview of Redstone. Well, that means you have to do an update. Basically, it was upgrade only. Microsoft hadn't distributed ISOs, so you couldn't do a clean install. So if you wanted to bring up a VM that was running Redstone, you would have to actually have to install an older version of Windows 10 and then join the insider group and then do the Windows updates to update to Redstone, which is super annoying. If you just want to jump in and preview something really quick, it's nice to have ISOs. And so Microsoft is finally distributing those. You can go to their website and download them. It is free. It uh, doesn't, doesn't cost anything. Uh, the links are... Uh, uh, on the insider site. Uh, you are still supposed to be in the insider program, but again, it's free. You join up and you can get in there and you can download those. So those are available. Uh, not a whole lot of, of crazy new mega exciting features in this current build, but there's many new technologies that are coming along in Windows 10 that will be pretty exciting. So definitely stuff you'll want to check out and now it's easier to do that. Fantastic. Well, another announcement from Microsoft uh, of, a, of a new build being released to the insider program is the Windows Server 2019 Insider Preview Builds uh, 17723, uh, this over on the uh, Windows blog. So anything new and exciting in this one? All right. This one does actually have a big new feature that makes this one important, right? So there have been a number of Windows Server 2019 builds released. We're getting closer and closer to Microsoft Ignite, their big conference, where they'll likely announce, formally announce Windows Server 2019. Usually October is when Microsoft tries to roll out the release to manufacture, the gold version. So we're getting really close. And I've been wondering, because with each version of Windows Server 2019 that's come out so far, it's had the old version of Hyper-V in it. Hyper-V has not been updated. This is the first one. So if you've been waiting to check out Hyper-V under Windows Server 2019, this is the build for you. So build 17.723 uh, just came out, uh, let's see, on the 31st, July 31st, so just a couple of days ago. Uh, it is out, it's available, and it has the first preview of Microsoft Hyper-V server. Uh, so you can check that out, see what it's like up and running, and, uh, and start to experiment around with it. It will likely change a little bit between now and the final release. But uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with it, Microsoft Hyper-V server, there's the Hyper-V hypervisor itself, but Microsoft Hyper-V server is the free platform that you can run. It doesn't cost a license to be able to build up a virtualization server. So a lot of schools, a lot of small businesses use that because it keeps their cost down and they can bring up whatever VMs they want on top of it. With Microsoft's big push into Kubernetes in server 2019 and just container stuff in general, uh, this version of server will start to get used a lot more. And so having that first preview version of it get released in 2019 is a big deal. So it's a, it's a pretty decent update. Yeah, that's the feature I saw in here that I was going to mention, that the uh, deploying some Kubernetes built-in features. That looks uh, kind of exciting, I know, for developers. Absolutely. And uh, I think we have another news article we'll talk about a yeah. little bit later that ties into this. But uh, these days, you hear hybrid cloud batted around quite a bit where you have on-prem servers and you have cloud servers. You need some kind of common infrastructure to be able to deploy your applications between the two. And so far, it looks like Kubernetes is winning that war. So you're definitely seeing Microsoft adopt that a lot more. And it'll it'll certainly it'll certainly change the kind of the format of server going forward. Yep. As you said, more on Kubernetes in a moment. Mm -hmm. We've got more coming up. Um, all right. Sticking on the Windows blog uh, platform here, we have another announcement. Introducing web authentication in Microsoft Edge. Uh, so this is getting to that that no passwords thing we've talked about for Absolutely. Quite some time. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, you know, Microsoft rolled out Windows Hello last year and you th the idea is if you have a Windows Hello system, you can walk up to your computer, you can sit down, it sees your face and it unlocks, right? No password, no password involved. So somebody would have to steal your face, which is marginally effective. Yeah, does it tell uh, if I'm in distress? Yeah. <laughs> well, 
it uses infrared cameras so it yeah. can tell if it's a photo and yeah. supposedly it's able to, to gauge temperature because of the infrared so it'll huh. know if you're deceased. Oh, deceased. Um, okay. Supposedly. Well, I but, wonder if my temperature has gone up because I've I've been told to sit down in front of your computer and unlock this thing. I should be able to blink oh, yeah, a certain that's, number that's of true. times. I guess I wouldn't know that. Maybe yeah. you can detect the, the gun being held near. Oh, that's true. So, yeah. <laughs> it's cold metal. Um, oh, not the plastic. 3D printed. Oh, good point. Yeah, yeah that's other news. Uh, yeah, we didn't Sorry, go on. on. And <laughs> so you were saying... All right, so Peter just defeated the whole system. But the uh, <laughs> thing about passwords is they, uh, they they have a problem with key loggers and other ways of being intercepted. People are bad about picking passwords. So Windows Hello was designed to eliminate that, but it just worked on the computer itself. The moment you went to the Facebook web page or you went to Twitter or Outlook Web Access or whatever, you had to put in a username and a password, right? And then you might have to do dual-factor authentication, like plug in a YubiKey or something to, to be able to unlock and, and get in. Well, with Microsoft Edge, they've now integrated where you can do this two-factor authentication, uh, but it's not even necessarily two-factor anymore because it's doing FIDO2, which allows you to provide the token as the single form and to be able to pass that into a web application. So now when you go to a website that supports it, which right now is not Facebook, but eventually it will be Facebook, you sit down, you fire up a web browser, you go to Facebook, you plug in your USB key or whatever your authentication is, and you authenticate without punching in a password. The web browser has to be able to act as the broker to exchange that token with the site, and Microsoft Edge now does that. Google's working on something similar for Chrome, and the Mozilla team is working on something similar for Firefox, but Microsoft Edge is pre-installed on Windows machines, so this is actually a it gives them a bit of an edge on the uh, the market to be able to jump out and provide that feature. So this is cool stuff. We're going to see more and more of this over the next couple of years because breaches keep happening. In fact, when we get to our security section, we'll see where this would, would really help some companies. Uh, but it is a, a neat thing to see. Yeah, and if you scroll down a little bit, Don, there's actually a little um, video that, that plays automatically uh, Yeah, right here where um, it shows the, the buying process. So as you, as you click on something... Uh, it goes ahead and goes through that on authentication to confirm that it's you. So that's kind of looks like what it what it will look like um, yeah. for the user experience. And and that one leveraged uh, Windows Hello there, yeah. so it was using the camera or, or whatever else to authenticate the person. They didn't have to plug in a key. And I, I've I've gotten really used to that on my phone because I've got the the iPhone X, and it'll do that as well for certain sites. Certain apps will um, utilize the the facial recognition where um, it'll kind of have that, and some where you have to do the two factor and still put in your password and things. So that, that's nice. Yeah. I, I love it on my iPhone 10 where I, I hold the phone and I wait a second for it not to recognize my face. Sure. And then I hit the button for it to try and recognize, and it, it, it doesn't, so I start punching mm -hmm. in my code. When I'm on the third number, then it recognizes, it recognizes my face. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, it's a great experience. You've got a, you've got a very <laughs> generic face. I've, I've said it for years, and now yeah. technology I, I struggle out. with the uh, – got to hold the phone up here like this. Like, yeah. uh, you're apparently having a much better experience than I am. I, yeah, I mean, in the dark, I, I, it works and everything hmm. for me. Hey, have you tried doing it in landscape? No. It doesn't work. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> so the iPhone 10, the most expensive phone on the planet. <laughs> oh, it's already unlocked. I'm sorry. If it was you, that quick. If you if you try and unlock in landscape mode, it doesn't work. Hold on. I'll, I'll trick it. Uh, well, I didn't think of that. It's like the uh, Shaq, the Shaq commercials. Remember when you had Taco Neck? Mm -hmm. and <laughs> oh, I'm unlocked. All right. I'm unlocked. So, uh, I can do it anyhow, from bed. The technology does not comprehend the phone being turned sideways. This is all evolving. It's, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's all uh, latest, greatest technology, and uh, there'll be growing pains. Ten years from now, this stuff will be awesome. So right now we're on the the bleeding edge. Yeah, and speaking of which, with with, with this particular software uh, or the, the announcement on Edge, it's one of those things. It's available, but it's not really going to be out there until websites start using it. Right. It'll take time for sites yeah. to support it, and it'll take time for people to use Edge, which I don't think is going to happen. So Google will release something in Chrome, and, <laughs> and then that's what we'll use. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then for years, we'll go, Edge, my website doesn't work in Edge. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, again, with Microsoft, even more Microsoft news. Lots of news out of Microsoft. Yeah, this week. one on the Azure side now. Um, Azure management groups now in general availability. Uh, boy, that's exciting. All right. So, yeah, sometimes we have uh, news articles that, that aren't necessarily sexy, but uh, but this is one that's actually very beneficial to me personally. So I said we're going to cover it. Um, if you ever use Microsoft Azure, then you know that when you sign up for an account, you actually create a subscription. And your account can have more than one subscription, which can have more than one pricing plan and so on. So that, that's all great. The idea is that you might have more than one client. And so you can create a different subscription for each client. Now it's easy to associate billing with your, your client. That, that works out well. The problem is 
it's a nightmare to assign permissions. So let's say I have five clients and I hire a contractor to work with me on two of those clients. Well, to manage permissions to just give them access to two of those clients is actually pretty tough or was tough until Azure management groups rolled out. Now, they started previewing Azure management groups months ago, so it's not like it's a brand new technology, but it just went into general availability a few days ago. So now it's available for everyone. And what you can do is you can basically take your Azure deployment and your Azure subscription, even a single subscription, and you can start dividing it up amongst these groups. Now, if you have a single subscription, you can kind of already do this. But if you have more than one subscription, it saves you from having to reinvent the wheel. And you'll see where they're attaching these different subscriptions to different people and how you can lay that out in a model that works a lot better. And you're only giving people access to what they actually need. Now, if you're a single company with a single environment, this is not that exciting to you. But if you are a managed services provider, if you are a contractor, this is something that really makes a, a big difference when it comes to working with Azure. Uh, this is actually easier than doing it in AWS. AWS has something similar, but it's a lot more difficult to set up. So Microsoft did a great job with this one, and that will help out a lot of people that, that are trying to handle more than one client inside of a single Azure login. All right, so do I, do I pay less as I go up with Azure, as I as I use more space and more more servers there, uh, it depends. Some of the services are like that. Like uh, on the bandwidth side, when you hit the higher thresholds, you get a bit of a discount. So I'm thinking now, I I just start up my own cloud service where I'm just leveraging Azure and and uh, giving everyone their own passwords. And you could, yeah, um, I'm subleasing. You would have to mark up on the initial price. It might be hard, but there's plenty of places that do that. I mean. Yeah. Uh, uh, who's a good example of this? Um, Rackspace, right? Rackspace resells uh, and it helps to do managed services on a lot of these cloud providers. And so you you might say like, um, uh, oh, I know a better example, Office 365, Okay, right? I can go and get Office, or shoot, I'm mixing it up, not uh, G Suite with Google. I'm just going to jump scenarios here. Uh, so G Suite with Google. I can sign up directly with Google for like $6 a month. Okay. Or I can go to hover.com, the DNS registrar, and I can register with them, and it's $7 a month, right? Why would I pay that extra dollar? Because I know that when I call Hover.com, a human being answers the phone, right? Like, that's their claim to fame, that they do that. If you call Google, first off, it's like winning the lottery. You found a phone number, yeah, right? <laughs> and so just, just that alone. So some people are willing to pay more to do that. And, and that is a great example, though. Uh, I, I know you were, you were joking, but... No. Uh, uh, it is a great example that if you wanted to start your own business of managed Azure deployments, you can easily subdivide that and give people administrative access just to that subscription, uh, and it, it would certainly work. All right. Well, I'm copywriting that idea. That is mine. <laughs> I'm sure I'm the first person to come up with it, except for the three examples you listed uh, very quickly. Uh, uh, yeah. All right. Let's go over now to uh, itprotoday.com, uh, and we talked earlier about Kubernetes. Well, Google is building a version of Kubernetes engine for on-prem data centers. So when they say a version of Kubernetes engine, are we talking like off-brand Kubernetes or this is a official Kubernetes uh, engine? So uh, you could make the argument that Google is Kubernetes at this point. Yeah. Um, so from that perspective, it's official, but this is really a, a variant. And what's going on is um, hybrid cloud, right? I mentioned that earlier. If you want hybrid cloud, where you've got on-premises servers and you've got cloud servers, wouldn't it be nice if you could manage them the same exact way, right? And Microsoft actually did that with a product called Azure Stack that you can deploy on-premises and it looks like Azure, even though it's on-premises. And you can move virtual machines between your on-prem and the cloud and it's all done seamlessly through this one environment. Well, Google is now doing the same thing with Kubernetes. You can use their version of Kubernetes engine on your local on-prem environment. And because they use Kubernetes in their cloud environment, you can easily deploy web applications and containers on-prem, in the cloud, all done the same way. In fact, when you deploy, if you've worked with Google Compute Engine, when you deploy, you choose an availability zone to deploy in. Your on-prem just shows up as another availability zone. And, and you, you actually don't see it really any different than the whole rest of the cloud environment. It is nice that it's Kubernetes. This, this is a problem I have with, with uh, like AWS and with Azure. If I do AWS Terraform, that only works on AWS. And if I ever decide one day I want to move my resources to another cloud provider, now I've got to rewrite all my automation. If I use Azure Stack, it works 
in Azure, and I got to rewrite all my playbooks when I deploy somewhere else. Google uses Kubernetes. So in theory, you could, you could develop your entire environment to deploy in the Kubernetes infrastructure and then easily move to any other provider like Rackspace or somebody that has a Kubernetes environment uh, or even OpenStack for that matter and deploy into that and you don't have to rewrite everything. It gives you a little more freedom. Uh, but Google is trying trying to work in that spot. They are still the number three, number four provider. They have less than 5% of the cloud market share. Uh, so they're definitely playing catch up. But moves like these are, are pretty big deals. And, uh, and this will help you to kind of bridge that gap. If you want a hybrid cloud with Google, this will certainly facilitate that. All right, sounds good. Well, let's now get to the more depressing uh, part of Technado, where we talk about all the things that were hacked this week. Uh, let's start over <laughs> on bleepycomputer.com. Uh, they weren't hacked, uh, but they're letting us know new NetSpectre attack can steal CPU secrets via network connections. So, all right, so this one is related to Spectre? Yes. But, so what is NetSpectre? All right, so Spectre, right? Spectre really required a malicious application or a web page with an embedded Java applet uh, running on a client to abuse the processor to be able to take advantage of Meltdown and get data potentially from like other virtual machines or whatever running on the system. Spectre is a local attack. In order to take advantage of Spectre, you've got to compromise the machine and run unauthorized code on that machine. So Spectre is bad, but it's detectable, right? So some security researchers, they actually found a way to take advantage of, Net, of uh, Spectre, not from the local machine, but via the network. So now they don't have to run, run malicious code on the machine they're targeting. They can do it remotely. And now they could target a system. And you would see elevated CPU usage. You would see things like that. But there would be no malicious process for you to be able to track to find out what's going on. And so it's much harder to detect. So that, that's, that's pretty bad. Right. Uh, in fact, the whole article sounds bad. But then there is one like uh, silver bit of lining to this, uh, oh, you know, a little light at the end of the tunnel, <laughs> which is it's not terribly effective. Um, they talk about it in here, the exfiltration rate that what they what the researchers were able to do was basically to steal about 15 bits of traffic per hour. Um, a bit is a one or a zero. Yeah. So 15 <laughs> ones or zeros. Uh, which means they could represent a number up to 65,535, I guess. I don't know, something like that. So um, not incredibly effective, right? Uh, they said that if the CPU was of a certain type, had certain accelerations in it, they could get as high as, brace yourself, 60 bits an hour, uh, four times the size. 60 bits an hour. That is not much data. Right. Yeah, they'll get that Word doc from you in two weeks. Yeah, it, your average Word document is over 1K, yeah. over 1,000 a, a bits. Actually, it's one kilobyte, so you have to multiply oh, that by eight. Yeah. So um, it would take a long, long time. And the way this attack is pulled off is by just totally flooding a network adapter, like just totally abusing it, and that would be detected. Like you yeah. would see this malicious network traffic. What's interesting here is not the attack itself. Don't don't worry. You're not going to get compromised with NetSpectre anytime soon. But they've shown that it's possible. That if this is one way to do it, there's probably other ways. And so the the whole meltdown inspector thing is not gone, even though a lot of the mitigations are out there. Uh, and in fact, they did say that the the standard mitigations for Spectre actually stopped this as well. So most of us have already patched for it, and it's not a big deal. But the proof of concept that they could do this over the network is kind of scary. Right, like you know, they could take advantage of a problem in a CPU without actually compromising the machine. Yeah, and it's not a huge deal if it's if it's slow. I mean, that's that's painfully slow. But if it, if it's something slow that isn't detectable, and they're able to put it on on your machine and just be, you know, siphoning stuff off the back uh, while you're working, that could be an issue. I mean, if if they're able to work around those uh, those performance issues that you would you would face and obviously notice something's wrong. But mm -hmm. uh, yeah, scary just to know that, that that exists and that is something that uh, I'm sure uh, if, if, the, if the good guys are looking at it, the bad guys are looking at it too. So, Yeah, and this, uh, this was all released about a week ago, so we'll see it evolve over the next few months and, and who knows what will come down. Uh, there's already a lot of different things changing on the CPU side, so it's going to be pretty active over the next few years. It's, uh, this, this stuff is kind of creating waves, that are just going to get bigger and bigger as we go on. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. All right. Our, our next uh, story over here is on Reddit, and it's actually about Reddit. Uh, that they, they had a security incident, and they were actually hacked. And uh, I'd just like to say hats off to them for being the ones who were actually reading about this. 
uh, from, as opposed to uh, in the New York Times or in, in some other uh, site, they're they're being very forthcoming, and and that's part of the story in itself that they're letting you know what happened. But it looks like some very old data was stolen, um, some old account credentials, um, not necessarily anything that is too current, right? Yeah, it. Um, I I have mixed feelings on this one, right? So uh, Reddit had a breach. Right, uh, attackers were able to get into some of their systems and access some old data. In particular, they got a full backup of Reddit from 2007. Well, that, that's 11 years ago. That's a long time ago. Uh, but the data was still there. So Reddit was maintaining backups for an incredibly long time ago. Now, there's a, a lesson to be had here. What is the benefit of maintaining a backup from 11 years ago? There's really no benefit unless you're legally obligated to maintain data that old. It's a liability. Yeah, which Reddit is not a bank, uh, yeah, <laughs> or well, anyone that would have to do that. You know, honestly, I worked at a bank, and and we had a rule that was you were not allowed to maintain data over two years oh, wow. unless you had a legal reason for maintaining it. So we we destroyed everything after two years because yeah. any data you maintain that wasn't necessary was a liability. So that we actually had these data cleanup days where you would go through and purge systems. So here. You know, they're, they're, they're uh, kind of paying the price on that. Now, the data was, you know, old Reddit threads from 2007. They had only been around a few years at that point, right? Yeah, I think that's they opened. I, they opened in the early 2000s, so they, they hadn't been around long. Um, encrypted uh, passwords. 2005. Oh, so they had only been open two years at yeah. this point. Um, uh, encrypted passwords were obtained, so, you know, if it was encrypted 11 years ago, maybe they could be decrypted now. So there's a, certainly a, a password risk there. But Reddit doesn't maintain a whole lot of personal information, so that's not too big of a deal. I did think it was interesting that um, they found out about this on June 19th, and then they just announced it on July, let's see, oh, yesterday, right? So um, uh, so this was just announced on, sorry, August 2nd. Yeah, so a so month and a half. A month later. and a yeah. half, which GDPR says you have three days to disclose a data breach. So this is a GDPR violation, isn't it? I guess it would be. Yeah, I, uh, I'm sure they'll try to say, oh no, it's it's information from 2007. So oh. that was way before GDPR. Technically, the breach happened before GDPR, I guess. Right, well, June 19th, GDPR no, May, was May. Oh, it was, it was May. Was, yeah, yeah, this is a. Hmm, oh, they just slipped in under the radar. <laughs> Good for them. All right, we'll get so, to see uh, how that goes. Yeah. So you know, kudos to them for coming out and talking about it, but they did take their time. Uh, now, what I found was interesting was how they think the attack was perpetrated, right? Uh, they said that uh, their employees have two-factor authentication, but it's SMS, text-based, right? And they feel that somebody was able to do text intercept to intercept the text message going to one of their employees' phones wow. to be able to, to get into that system. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, like compromising the 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 U.S. text system, or you know they don't necessarily call out whether it was in the U.S. Reddit has employees all over the world, um, but if they were able to inter intercept a text message, then that would would cause a problem. Uh, I think we'll find out more. I think it's unlikely that the telco system was the one that was compromised here. Maybe their their phone was compromised, mm -hmm. uh, but not the whole system. So we'll, we'll have to see if more details come out. Um, this one. It seems like they're giving a lot of information, but I felt like they really didn't didn't quite give enough. Yeah, I like how this article was written by Kaiser Sosa. Um, <laughs> but I yeah. uh, just want to point out for all of you that, uh, that are Reddit users, if you've had an account since 2007 and you haven't updated your password in 11 years, yeah, now's the time. Uh, go ahead and do that every every decade password reset. Yeah, and if if you were affected, they're actually sending out private messages. So you know, check your private message box. They'll tell you if you were affected. That's the only thing I I, I mean besides credentials, which if anyone's credentials are still the same as they were 11, 12 years ago, that I'd be very surprised or longer than that. But uh, I wonder if private messages were also. Um, you know, in that that data dump, so that that's maybe something that uh, someone could use as I want to say they were blackmail, um, or if it's a full a full copy of the website, or I, I guess that would be everything. So uh, let's see. It says in all content, mostly public, but also private messages from way back then. Yeah, yeah some so. some of the things that these people post publicly are offensive enough. So that's true. Imagine what they're saying. You know, like privately. that red sweater guy, right? Where everybody loves him one yeah. day, and then they look at his Reddit message or. Reddit or tweets that got the red sweater guy. I think it was Reddit. I think, I think they found Reddit, Reddit yeah. stuff that he had posted and what like there's a there's a phrase for that uh that pattern. It's like the Nazi duck or something like 
Oh, I, uh, that came up in one of our yeah, podcasts. Yeah, where it's I like everyone loves called. him, and then all of a sudden, two yeah. days later, you find out he's a racist. Yeah. Well, that's how it goes <laughs> on the internet. Uh, we got one more story for you here uh, to talk about over on Ars Technica. Um, it's about Steam, right? Right. Uh, yeah, Val, yeah Valve, removes, uh, Valve removes the Steam game after allegations of hidden cryptocurrency miner. Uh, ooh, and this article is updated, so we, we've got the Update. latest breaking news. So... What is going on? First of all, what what game are they playing there? That's a horrible-looking yeah. game. Is that Pong? So, uh, <laughs> you know, we don't normally do video game news, but uh, this one was interesting because it definitely fell under IT security. Uh, this is a game called Abstractism, and apparently it's just a very simple game, like low 2D graphics or, or whatever. And what happened was some people noticed that while this game was running, it was consuming a lot of CPU and memory for being as simple as it is. And for those of you who are just listening, it's basically a block on a screen, and you move the block around these other blocks, and that's it. It's even black and white, so there's not a whole heck of a lot to this game. But it had a system built into it that encouraged people to run the game for long periods of time. You would get these cards or tickets, reward points, for playing for long periods of time. If you ran it for seven hours, you would get these bonuses. And then if you ran it for 40 hours, you'd get the huge bonuses. So the game was consuming a lot of CPU and encouraging people to keep it running, even though it's this very, very plain game. So people started to theorize that maybe it was running a Bitcoin miner. That, hey, they're encouraging you to keep the application open so that they can mine for Bitcoin. And the publisher came out and said, no, 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 we're not doing that. It's just, it, it's intense graphics. Well, for those of you looking, it's not intense <laughs> graphics. I mean, unless they're doing some crazy extra rendering in here. It's not even anti-aliased. It's just, it's, it's bad. Um, so the odds are it was. Now, we never actually got to see whether or not it was doing that because the game got taken down too fast. Uh, Valve made that decision. And this is a big deal because Valve just announced a few weeks ago that for now on, they're not going to censor or filter their games unless it's doing something criminal or it's, I think they said something like outright trolling the market. Uh, and in this case, it's kind of in that trolling area where it's a pretty crappy game and it's Bitcoin mining in the background. So they've yanked it. But why I thought this was interesting for the podcast is this is becoming an increasing event that there's web pages that have Bitcoin miners embedded in them. There's applications, there's Trojan horses. You know, it used to be you download a, an application and it would have a virus attached to it. Now it has a Bitcoin miner attached to it. And people won't notice. You might hear your fans ramp up on your computer, but otherwise your computer's behaving like normal. And in the meantime, it's mining for Bitcoin. Your electric bill will be a lot higher than it should be. And it's effectively stealing from you. And money is going to somebody else. So this is becoming something more and more common. And if you're a system administrator, you need to be monitoring CPU performance on the nodes in your network so that you can see, hey, this one computer's been running at 100% CPU all week long. That's not normal. And you can start to spot the Bitcoin miners on your network based solely on uh, CPU utilization. So definitely start looking for that. Even on your home computers, if you hear your fan running way more than it should be, look for background processes, look for weird stuff. The It's a different type of attack, right? Because it's not so insidious. It's not damaging your computer. It's just using your CPU cycles and benefiting somebody else. And this is why I don't go on the internet or play games. And by the way, I've looked it up. Milkshake Duck. Milkshake Duck. All yes, right. it uh, came from a tweet a while back uh, from a uh, user at Pixelated Boat who said, the whole internet loves Milkshake Duck, a lovely duck that drinks milkshakes. Five seconds later, we regret to inform you, the duck is a racist. Ah. So he just came up with that. Little known facts phrase. about ducks. Yeah. They, uh, yeah they Not all ducks. Very just divisive. that duck uh, who enjoys milkshakes. <laughs> so there you go. Um, well, we want to want to thank Rob uh, for joining us today and enlightening us. And, uh, and thank you, Don, for sharing the news with us. And I also wanted to uh, real quick let you know about a couple of webinars uh, we have coming up very soon uh, over at IT Pro TV. Uh, we've got one uh, taking the CompTIA A plus exam. It's going to be some tips and tricks to help you understand uh, some test taking uh, uh, tips there. Um, so we've got guys like, who, I think Wes Bryan's doing that one, who is uh, 
you know, taught all of those courses for us and I'm very familiar with the test taking process uh, so he can pass along some of his best practices. We also have Surviving a DDoS Attack, Our Story, uh, which is coming up later in August. Uh, talks about what we went through here at IT Pro TV when, uh, when we were DDoSed and uh, how we handled it, the approach we took, and we'll also talk about some other uh, approaches you can take and, and things to uh, kind of remediate uh, if, if those things happen at your business. Uh, also want to let you know uh, real quick that if you are thinking about uh, joining IT Pro TV as a member, we'd love to have you, and you can use the coupon code PODCAST30 to save 30% off the lifetime of your membership. Uh, so definitely take advantage of that and get all that great content for a discounted rate. So, Don, anything to add today? Uh, no, I think that's it. You know, uh, uh, we do always want to thank the staff over at IT Pro TV. They are the ones who sponsor this podcast. Wouldn't happen, happen without them. Uh, and those webinars are always a lot of fun, too, so check them out. But otherwise, I think it's going to be about it for us this week. Yeah, and if you if you want to meet the staff and happen to be out in Las Vegas uh, next week, so the basically the first week of August, uh, depending on when you're watching, uh, we're going to be out there for B-Sides Las Vegas. So if you're out for Black Hat or even... Uh, maybe a little early for DEFCON. Um, a lot of people seem to go out there for those whole couple of weeks and hit all of that. Um, let us know because uh, we're doing an event on Tuesday the 7th, I believe it is. Um, so we'd love to meet you. So just reach out on however you saw this. I'm sure there's a, a way to reach out and uh, we'll get you on that uh, RSVP list. But for now, I guess that's going to do it for us. So thanks so much for watching and we'll see you next week. 